Chapter 8, John, Preexistence, and the Trinity. I start with a quotation from Professor J.A.T. Robinson, who said, The clear evidence of John is that Jesus refused the claim to be God. Someone has calculated that singular pronouns describe the God of the Hebrew Bible tens of thousands of times. I got that statistic from James Yates in his book Vindication of Unitarianism, written in 1816. Each one of these references is a testimony to God as a single individual, not a plurality of persons. It's a standard fact of language with which no one will argue that the personal pronoun of the singular number denotes a single person. The process by which the God of Israel became a trinity speaks of Gentile failure to penetrate the depths of Jewish monotheism and a tendency to mix a strain of paganism with scripture. Prodigious efforts have been made to turn the God of Israel into more than one person. So-called clues pointing to the Trinity have been found in the most unlikely places, as for example the Holy, Holy, Holy of Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6 verse 3. Many Trinitarians have now abandoned the struggle to find their creed in the Hebrew Bible. Much unnecessary labor could have been spared if Jesus and Paul's simple creedal statements had been heeded. It remains an undeniable fact that Jesus agreed with the Unitarian creed of Israel, as we find in Mark chapter 12, verse 29 and following. And Paul defined the one God as one person. In a passage deliberately contrasting Christianity with paganism, Paul describes the one God as numerically one, as distinct from the many gods of the heathen. Condensing the information provided by Paul in the fourth and sixth verses of 1 Corinthians 8, we find the following creed. I quote, There is no God except the one God, the Father. Such is the Pauline non-Trinitarian view of God. The comment of John Milton, the distinguished British poet, theologian, and vigorous anti-Trinitarian, confirms our point. I quote, here in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 and 6, there is no other God but one. This, says Milton, excludes not only all other essences, but all other persons whatever. For it is expressly said in the sixth verse that the Father is that one God. Therefore, there is no other person but one. That's from John Milton's treatise on Christian doctrine, republished in 1908. It's amazing that Trinitarianism is not satisfied with these transparently simple definitions of the Godhead. It seems bent on leaving behind the creed which belonged not only to the authors of the Old Testament but to Jesus himself. A shift in thinking is unmistakable. Noted names in theology have sensed that a foreign influence has obscured the original faith. C. H. Dodd remarked that, quote, the Jews have preserved in living tradition elements of the prophetic ideal which belonged to Christianity at the first 
but were overlaid by Greek metaphysics and Roman law. That's a quotation from the Epistle of Paul to the Romans, cited by Hugh Schoenfield in his book, The Politics of God, written in 1970. The same problem was alluded to by Albert Schweitzer. I quote, the great and still undischarged task which confronts those engaged in the historical study of primitive Christianity is to explain how the teaching of Jesus developed into early Greek theology. Interference with the Gospel of John. Our translations of John chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 seem to complicate the simple majesty of the one God of Israel's creed, erecting an unwanted barrier between Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. The renowned translator of the English Bible, William Tyndale, was not so sure that John's word, lowercase w-o-r-d, was one-to-one -one the equivalent of Christ pre-existing. He renders the famous verses Quote, in the beginning was the Word, with lowercase w, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by it, in it was life. That's from Tyndale's New Testament, a translation from the Greek, by William Tyndale in 1534. It seems strange that John 1, 1-4, a handful of verses in John, and a few other New Testament passages should be allowed to overthrow the constant and massive biblical evidence for unitary monotheism. The oneness of God was strenuously defended by priest and prophet and by Jesus himself, who was as ardent an exponent of this part of his own Jewish heritage as any of his compatriots. This chapter is devoted to a discussion of the questions posed by John's account of the person of Jesus. John's rich portrait of Jesus does not include the notion that the Son of God is a pre-existent divine person and member of a trinity. The cherished view of Jesus as uncreated and co-equal with the Father is not derived from Scripture. Rather, it's been handed down through post-biblical tradition, attempts to root the idea of pre-existence in the Gospel of John involve a distortion of John's intention. Properly exegeted, the writings of the beloved apostle harmonize with the synoptic presentation of Jesus as a unique human being, deriving his origin from his supernatural conception in Mary. John does not present Jesus as an eternal member of a triune Godhead, but rather as the fulfillment of God's eternal plan to bring into being the Messiah. Thus for John, as well as for Paul, Jesus pre-existed in the mind and purpose of God, rather than literally as a timeless being. Though largely lost in the shuffle of doctrinal change which overcame the church from the second century, this unorthodox, so-called, portrait of Jesus had its exponents in the centuries following the writing of the New Testament. It reappears at important junctures throughout church history, 
notably among the Polish Anabaptists of the 16th century. The modern discussion of Christology has centered around this same issue of the nature of pre-existence. The traditional notion of pre-existence is destructive to the true humanity of Jesus and diminishes some of the wonder of his achievement on our behalf. It also creates the whole problem of the Trinity, which many believe only because they're expected to do so. A return to biblical Christology will mean the recovery of Jesus' messiahship, obscured and disparaged for so long by the post-biblical Christological development. Problems with the notion of literal pre-existence. The very commonly held idea that Jesus was alive before his conception raises a number of questions about his nature. Is it possible to be a human being in any meaningful sense if one does not originate in the womb of one's mother? A number of leading scholars have recently thought not. I quote, we can have the humanity of Christ without the pre-existence and we can have the pre-existence without the humanity. There is absolutely no way of having both. That's a quotation from John Knox's book, The Humanity and Divinity of Jesus, written in 1967. Angels belong to a category different from human beings, precisely because of their origin outside the system of human procreation. If the Son of God was really a being who changed himself or was changed by God in order to enter the human race through Mary, he clearly belongs to a category of being vastly different from the rest of humanity. There are other considerations. The Messiah, according to the Scriptures, was to be a descendant of David. Psalm 132, verse 11, Acts 2, verse 30, 2 Samuel 7, verses 14 to 16, and Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. The Messiah, according to the Scriptures, was to be a descendant of David, of Abraham, Galatians 3.16, and the seed, or descendant, of the woman, Genesis 3 verse 15. Paul constantly thinks of Christ as the last Adam or man. If he existed as a person before his conception, in what sense is he the real person, a human being, and a descendant of David and of Abraham? Does Scripture really place Jesus in a class of being whose origin is outside the human womb? Our suggestion is that the evidence often cited from the Bible, mainly from John's Gospel, for belief in a literal pre-existence for the Messiah, does not stand up under close examination. We maintain that the idea has to be held prior to an investigation of the scriptural evidence and then read into the Bible. There's also a significant bias in our standard translations due to the preconceptions of orthodoxy, which encourages us to read the New Testament through spectacles colored by later dogma.
The same bias causes theologians to represent the apostles even after Pentecost as, quote, primitive believers struggling towards the Trinitarian creed of post-biblical church councils. Did John differ with Matthew, Mark, and Luke over the issue of pre-existence? By way of background to an examination of John's Gospel, it is vitally important to keep in mind the facts about Jesus' origin presented by the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke set out to put before Theophilus the great Christian truths which the latter had learned as a believer. In Luke's words, the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Luke 1 verse 4. Few have ever tried to argue that Luke included in his portrait of Jesus a single word suggesting that Jesus was other than a human being, supernaturally conceived and coming into existence for the first time at his conception. The same may be said of Matthew's and Mark's accounts and of the presentation of Jesus in the book of Acts. Both theologians and historians are agreed that this is so. I quote, In the synoptics, there's no direct statement of the pre-existence of Christ. They do not anywhere declare his pre-existence. That's a quotation from B.F. Westcott in his commentary on the Gospel of John, written in 1981. First, we have the Christology of the Synoptic Gospels. And here it cannot be contended on any sufficient ground that they give us the slightest justification for advancing beyond the idea of a purely human Messiah. The idea of pre-existence lies completely outside the synoptic sphere of view. Nothing could show this more clearly than the narrative of the supernatural birth of Jesus. All that raises him above humanity though it does not take away the pure humanity of his person, is to be referred only to the Pnevma Aion, or Holy Spirit, which brought about his conception. The synoptic Christology has for its substantial foundation the notion of the Messiah, designated and conceived as the Ios Theu, Son of God, and all the points of the working out of the notion rest on the same supposition of a nature essentially human. That's a quotation from F.C. Bauer, Church History of the First Three Centuries, written in 1878. Another quotation. Pre-existence does not belong to the primary data of the Christian faith in the historic and exalted Jesus, but it is a necessary implicate of that faith, and I put in brackets here, more solid evidence is needed than implication. It forms no element in the primitive doctrine recorded in the opening chapters of Acts. In the book of Acts, there is no emergence of the thought that his origin must be transcendent as his destiny, no hint of pre-existence. Christ's place in eternity is in the foreknowledge 
and the counsel of the Father. That's a quotation from the Dictionary of the Apostolic Church, written in 1916. Most significantly, the view that Jesus existed prior to his birth, only in the counsels of God, is the one expressed by Peter in his first epistle. At the end of his career, Peter has not changed the view expressed in his early speeches in Acts. I quote, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but manifested in the last days for you. 1 Peter 1, verse 20. E.G. Selwyn notes correctly, quote, nor are we entitled to say that Peter was familiar with the idea of Christ's pre-existence. For this idea is not necessarily implied in his description of Christ as foreknown before the foundation of the world, since Christians also are objects of God's foreknowledge. That's a quotation from Selwyn's first epistle of St. Peter. All the faithful were similarly, quote, foreknown, 1 Peter 1 verse 2, but this obviously does not mean that they pre-existed. If Peter did not think that Jesus pre-existed his birth, this leading apostle could not have believed in the Trinity. A professor of ecclesiastical history who examined the issue carefully found no evidence for belief in Jesus' pre-existence in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I quote, that Jesus, whose mind was steeped in the prophets, derived his messianic conception from the common Hebrew source, is patent. Whilst his messianic mission is thus rooted in prophecy, to which Jesus himself appeals in attestation of it, it does not appear that he assumed or ascribed to himself a pre-temporal existence. According to what Matthew and Luke relate of his origin, he is divinely generated, but he has not pre-existed. He is represented as coming into being in the womb of the Virgin by the generation of the Holy Spirit. No one can reasonably maintain that according to the versions of his supernatural generation given by Matthew and Luke, that Jesus existed before this creative divine act, nor is there any explicit indication in his own utterance that he himself was conscious of a personal pre-existence. It is thus not with a pre-existent ethereal being, incarnate in human form, that we have to do in the Synoptic Gospels, but with one who, albeit divinely invested with an exalted vocation and destiny, enters on both in time and is wholly subject to the conditions of human existence from birth to death. That's from James McKinnon's book, The Historic Jesus, written in 1931. No one will doubt the thoroughness of Raymond Brown's examination of the birth narratives of the Messiah. He too finds that neither Matthew nor Luke believed that Jesus pre-existed his conception. I quote, The fact that Matthew can speak of Jesus as begotten 
the passive of the verb yenan in 1.16 and verse 20. This suggests that for him, for Matthew, the conception through the agency of the Holy Spirit is the becoming of God's Son. Clearly here, divine sonship is not adoptive sonship, but there is no suggestion of an incarnation whereby a figure who was previously with God takes on flesh. As from Raymond Brown's book, The Birth of the Messiah, in the same work, Raymond Brown says, in the commentary, I shall stress that Matthew and Luke show no knowledge of pre-existence. Seemingly for them, the conception was the becoming or begetting of the Son of God. I note that the Christian doctrine of pre-existence would be entirely incompatible with Matthew's depictions of Jesus' origins. That's a quotation from Aaron Milavik in Biblical Theology Bulletin of 1978. This startling admission from a respected biblical scholar like Raymond Brown confirms the fact that the doctrine of the Incarnation is not found in Matthew or Luke. The same is true of Mark's Gospel. Raymond Brown notes that these are awkward facts for theologians schooled in the traditional belief in an eternally pre-existing Son. I quote from Raymond Brown. He refers to Lyonnais in his work L'Annonciation, and Lyonnais points out that this, that's to say Luke's omission of any reference to pre-existence, has embarrassed many orthodox theologians, since in pre-existence Christology, a conception by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, does not bring about the existence of God's Son. Luke is seemingly unaware of such a Christology. Conception for Luke is causally related to divine sonship. It's a quotation from Brown's book, The Birth of the Messiah. Traditional Christianity, remarkably, has insisted, nevertheless, that Jesus did exist before his conception and as the Son of God and the second member of a divine trinity. This concept, however, cannot possibly be traced to Matthew or Luke. Both present us with a Jesus who began to exist when Mary conceived him under the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke's message is clear. It was the supernatural act of God affecting Mary which brought into being the Son of God. No one reading Luke's words could imagine that this person had been the Son of God prior to the miracle which God wrought in Mary. Luke's Jesus begins, like every other human being, in the womb of his mother. I quote, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. The Holy Spirit will come upon you 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. End of quotation from Luke, chapter 1, verses 31 and 35. This key text provides no evidence at all for thinking that Jesus had an existence prior to conception. For Luke, the Son of God, is generated around 3 BC, not in eternity. Matthew is in full agreement with Luke. He declares Jesus to be, quote, the Son of David and the Son of Abraham. Matthew 1, verse 1. Miraculously conceived by Mary under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1, verses 18 and 20. Traditional orthodoxy relies heavily on a number of texts in John's Gospel, John 17:5 and John 8:58. These are supposed to demonstrate that Jesus' origin is not in the womb of Mary, but in eternity, so that he is actually conscious of his pre-mundane existence with the Father. But can these verses really bear the weight of such a stupendous proposition? one which appears to place John's Jesus in a class of being quite different from that of the synoptics. Or is there another way to read John which brings his testimony into harmony with the other Gospels? The question is one that has surfaced throughout the course of Christian history, notably in the work, among many others, of Paul of Samosata, around 200 to 275, Photinus, around 300 to 376, the Anabaptist Adam Pastor, 1500 to 1570, Michael Servetus, 1511 to 1553, the Polish Anabaptists, the Englishman John Biddle, 1615 to 1662, and 19th century anti-Trinitarian scholars in America, Britain, and Germany. And recently at Cambridge, the remark of Morris Wiles pointedly restates what has long been the conviction among a minority group of believers. I quote, Within the Christian tradition, the New Testament has long been read through the prism of the later conciliar creeds. Speaking of Jesus as the Son of God, had a very different connotation in the first century from that which it has had ever since Nicaea. Talk of Jesus' pre-existence in Scripture, or probably in most, perhaps in all cases, to be understood on the analogy of the pre-existence of the Torah to indicate the eternal divine purpose being achieved through him rather than pre-existence of a fully personal kind. That's from Maurice Wilde's book, The Remaking of Christian Doctrine. The problem for Trinitarians is that they must seek their main support from John at the risk of contradicting Matthew and Luke. I note that according to many manuscripts, Matthew records the genesis, genesis in Greek, or origin 
beginning of Jesus in Matthew 1.18, it was not just his birth. Mark and Luke know nothing of a Jesus who pre-existed his birth. Luke's birth narrative expressly excludes an eternal generation for the Son, who becomes God's Son at his conception. A reasonable possibility is that John's view of Christ is, in fact, in harmony with the other Gospel writers. There's another way, however, to read the Gospel of John, a way which harmonizes him with his fellow Gospel writers, that Matthew and John agreed about who Jesus was is strongly indicated by a simple fact. Matthew 16, verses 16 and 18, records Jesus as making belief that he is the Messiah the basis of the Christian faith. John 20, verse 31, announces John's object in writing his gospel. It was, as John says, to demonstrate exactly the same truth, namely, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The word in John's prologue. Recent commentaries on John admit that despite the long-standing tradition to the contrary, the term word, with lowercase w, in the famous prologue of John, need not refer to the Son of God before he was born. Our translations imply belief in the traditional doctrine of incarnation by capitalizing the word word. But what was it that became flesh in John 1.14? Was it a pre-existing person? Or was it the self-expressive activity of God the Father, his eternal plan, indeed his gospel? A plan may take flesh, for example, when the design in the architect's mind finally takes shape as a house. What pre-existed, the visible bricks and mortar, was the intention in the mind of the architect. Thus it is quite in order to read John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the creative purpose of God. It was with God, and it was fully expressive of God. I note that Gabriel Facre in his book, The Christian Story, refers with approval to Theophilus of Antioch's understanding of the Logos as God's plan, purpose, reason, and vision, and suggests as the translation of John 1, verse 1, quote, the vision was with God, and the vision was God. It was with God, the vision, or word, and it was fully expressive of God. It was indeed theos. The NEB attempts to convey the meaning with what the word was, God was. The word was with God and was fully expressive of God. It was theos, just as wisdom was with God before creation, as we read in Proverbs 8, verse 30. All things came into being through it, this rendering suits the Old Testament use of the word admirably. I quote, So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. 
it shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. That's from Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11. I note that for the Old Testament use of the term word, we should consult Psalm 33, 6 to 12, and also in James Dunn's Christology in the Making, pages 217 and 218. Jesus is that word expressed as a human being, God's last word to the world, the Son in whom God has spoken at the end of these days, Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2. It is significant that the writer to the Hebrews places the Son in these last days as the divine agent who follows the prophets. He does not place him in eternity, but thinks of the Son as the historical Christ. The ambiguity in the Greek, via aftu, through it, or through him, John 1 verse 3, allows for an impersonal word, lowercase w word, before Jesus is born. The impersonality of the word is suggested by John's own commentary on John 1 verse 1, which he gives in 1 John, the epistle, chapter 1 verse 2. It was impersonal, eternal life, the life of the age to come, which was, quote, with the Father, Prostantheon. 1 John 1 verse 2, and compare the word here, which was prostantheon, the promise of eternal life to be provided through Jesus. Peter seems to echo the same idea exactly when he describes Jesus as the Lamb of God who was, quote, foreknown before the foundation of the world, but manifested in these last days. 1 Peter 1, verse 20. Only a few verses earlier, he uses the same concept of foreknowledge in speaking of God's plan to call Christians to salvation. 1 Peter 1, verse 2. God took note of those whom he later called, but they did not pre-exist literally. Peter's application of this concept to Jesus in verse 20 points to an ideal so-called pre-existence in the eternal counsels of God, not to an actual existence in another dimension before birth as a human being. An interesting parallel occurs in the book of Revelation, where all things, quote, were and were created. Revelation 4, verse 11, Mount's comments that, quote, this unusual phrase suggests that all things which are existed first in the eternal will of God and through his will came into actual being at his appointed time. That's from R. H. Mance's commentary on the book of Revelation, written in 1977. Trinitarian commentators recognize that there's no compelling reason to believe that the original readers of John's prologue would have thought of the word, lowercase w, as the Son, literally pre-existing as a person. 
until John 1, verse 14, where we read the word became flesh, it would have been quite possible for the reader to have taken the word word to refer to some supreme cosmic principle or the like. So says Leon Morris in his Gospel according to John, New International Commentary on the New Testament, written in 1971. It is a little-known fact that English translations of John 1 and verse 2 before the King James Version described the word as it, not him. The point is brought into focus by James Dunn in his exhaustive examination of the traditional doctrine of incarnation. He argues that outside John's Gospel, there's no doctrine of a literal pre-existence. The point is brought into focus by James Dunn. In his exhaustive examination of the traditional doctrine of incarnation, he argues that outside John's Gospel, there's no doctrine of a literal pre-existence. Dunn, however, makes the important point that before John 1, verse 14, there's no need to think of the Word, lowercase w, as a second personal being with the Father. Of John 1, verse 1, James Dunn says, The conclusion which seems to emerge from our analysis of John 1, 1 to 14, thus far, is that it is only with verse 14, the Word became flesh, that we can begin to speak of the personal logos. The poem uses rather impersonal language, like became flesh, but no Christian would fail to recognize here a reference to Jesus. The Word became not flesh in general, but Jesus Christ. Prior to verse 14, we are in the same realm as pre-Christian talk of wisdom and logos, the same language and ideas that we find in Philo, where, as we've seen, we are dealing with personifications rather than persons, personified actions of God rather than an individual divine being as such. The point is obscured by the fact that we have to translate the masculine Logos as he throughout the poem. But if we translated Logos as God's utterance, instead, it would become clearer that the poem did not necessarily intend that Logos of verses 1 to 13 was really a personal divine being before verse 14. In other words, the revolutionary significance of verse 14 may well be that it marks not only the transition in the thought of the poem from pre-existence to incarnation, but also the transition from impersonal personification to actual person. End of quotation from James Dunn's Christology in the Making. But I ask this, why do we have to translate the masculine Logos as he? Only to support a traditional interpretation of John's prologue. If Logos is taken as God's plan, God's idea, God's vision, but not the Son alive before his birth, a major support is removed from the structure of the traditional view of pre-existence 
and the Trinity in John's Gospel. A further look at John 1 verse 1. Is the current translation of John 1 verse 1 really a translation at all? If by translation we mean the conveying of the original into an intelligible equivalent in the target language. Does the phrase, the word was with God, mean anything in English? When was your word last with you? We suspect that our present standard renderings, though they may be literally correct, simply allow the reader to feel good about his received orthodox Christology of the eternal Son, assuming human nature. The capital on word immediately suggests a person pre-existing, and many readers, for example, 11 million copies around the world in many languages, are offered a paraphrase such as the Good News Bible, which reads, before anything else existed, there was Christ with God. He's always been alive and is himself God. He created everything there is. Nothing exists that he did not make. Compare with that the Good News Bible on 1 John 1 verse 1, which reads, Christ was alive when the world began. The reader's orthodoxy is all the more confirmed, but the Roman Catholic scholar Karl Josef Kuschel, in his recent massive treatment of the question of Christ's origin, asks, quote, Why do we instinctively read, In the beginning was the Son? and the Son was with God. That's from Kuschel's book, Born Before All Time, The Debate About the Origin of Christ, written in 1992. It seems to us that the Hebrew Bible should provide our first line of investigation if we are to get at John's intention in the prologue. As a professor told me in seminary, Quote, if you misunderstand the Old Testament, you will misunderstand the New Testament. Amazingly, no occurrence of the Hebrew word davar, meaning word, corresponding to John's Greek word logos, provides any evidence at all that the word from the beginning means a person, much less an uncreated second divine person, the Son of God, alongside the one God of Israel's creed, Davar, the Hebrew word for word, in the Old Testament, means word, lowercase w. Matter, often promise or intention, but never a person. Ubiquitous presence of a capital W on word in our English versions is unwarranted. John did not say that the pre-existent word was a second and distinct person before it became embodied in the Messiah. Why shouldn't John, therefore, be saying that God's creative and expressive activity, his word or wisdom, the index of his mind, was with him, just as wisdom was with him in Proverbs 8, verse 30, in the Greek Septuagint version. Proverbs 8, in fact, has remarkable parallels with what John later says about Jesus. Life is found in the words of Jesus. John 6, verse 63, as it is found in wisdom. Wisdom cries out, just as Jesus does in John 12, 44, 
as he urges people to heed his teaching. What is predicated of wisdom in Proverbs is elsewhere attributed to God. For example, as in Job 12, verses 13 to 16. Significantly, John always uses the preposition para, with, to express the proximity of one person to another. In John 1, 39, 4, verse 40, 8, verse 38, and so on. Yet in his prologue, he chooses pros, meaning with, suggesting that the word is not meant to designate a person alongside God. The first verse of John is reminiscent, too, of what wisdom says in Ecclesiasticus 24, verse 9, quote, God created me from the beginning of the world. There's good evidence that the Hebrew preposition im or et, meaning with, can describe the relationship between a person and what is in his heart or mind. Here are some interesting examples of the use of the Hebrew prepositions im and et from the Hebrew Bible. I quote, im, meaning with, alone, equal in one's conscience, whether of knowledge, memory, or purpose. That's from the Brown, Driver, and Briggs Hebrew and English lexicon of the Old Testament. Numbers 14, verse 24. He had another spirit with him, i.e. operating in his mind. 1 Kings 11, verse 11. This is with you, Solomon. That is what you want. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 12. The pattern of all that was in the spirit with him, that is, in his mind. Job 10, verse 13, I know that this was with you, parallel to hidden in your heart or in your mind, as we find in the NIV. And then I know that these things are your purpose, as translated by the New American Standard Version. Job 15, verse 9, which is not with us meaning we don't understand it. Job 23, verse 10, He knows the way which is with me, the way of which I am conscious, that is. Job 23, verse 14, He performs the things which are appointed for me, and many such things are with him. That's to say, his purposes. Psalm 50, verse 11, Quote, wild beasts of the field are with me, that's to say, known to me in my thought and care. Psalm 73, verse 23, I am continually with thee, that's to say, in your thoughts. And then the preposition et. A dream or word of Yahweh is said to be with the prophet. Genesis 10, verse 14. Keep me in mind when it goes well with you. Literally, remember me with yourself. The word then was what God had in mind. Second Kings 3 verse 12, There is with him the word of the Lord. Compare with that Second John verse 2, Truth is with us.
and Galatians 2 verse 5, truth remains with you. The same Greek preposition, pros, there. Isaiah 59 verse 12, transgressions are with us, that's to say in our knowledge, present to our mind. Compare with that John 17 verse 5, the glory which Jesus had with God, that's to say present to God's mind as his purpose. Jeremiah 12 verse 3, you examine my heart's attitude with you, literally you have tried my heart with you. Jeremiah 23 verse 28, the prophet with whom there is a dream, that's to say the prophet who has a dream. Jeremiah 27 verse 18, if the word of the Lord is with them. Job 14 verse 5, his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, that's to say known to you. Proverbs 2 verse 1, treasure my commandments within you, equals in the original Hebrew, with you. Proverbs 11 verse 2, wisdom is with the humble. In view of this Hebrew background, we suggest a translation of John 1, 1 and 14 as follows. In the beginning, God had a plan, and the plan was fixed as God's decree, and the plan was fully expressive of God's mind, and the plan became embodied in the man, Messiah, Jesus. And for the word plan there, we could well substitute the word gospel. John, in his prologue, is counteracting the Gnostic tendency towards a dualistic or pluralistic idea of God. A Gnostic Christian believed that the ineffable, unapproachable God, who was remote and distant from his creation, was mediated to his world by lesser divine figures. These were called aeons, or a single lesser divine figure. The various Gnostic systems differed on this point. Justin Martyr, who certainly did not claim any Gnostic affiliation, nevertheless has no qualms about speaking of the pre-existing Son, who is, quote, an arithmetically second God, not, however, uncreated and eternal, as the Son, in the developed Trinitarian sense, but pre-existing as the Son, and coming forth at a moment of time just before the Genesis creation. Justin strikes out on a path which is alien to the New Testament when he sees the Son of God active in Old Testament times as the angel of the Lord. I quote, in the middle of the second century, Justin composed his apology and dialogue and in these, the influence of philosophy on Christianity appears in full force. Justin discloses the nexus between pagan forms of philosophy, the bridge by which the former passed over into the latter's territory. Christianity found in the Hellenic Judaism of Alexandria, the means by which, while preserving its hold on Christian and Hebrew revelation, it could yet adopt the philosophical thoughts and retain the philosophical conceptions of the day. That's a quotation from G.T. Purvis entitled 
the influence of paganism on post-apostolic Christianity in the Presbyterian Review in 1888. The disastrous impact of Alexandrian philosophy is well recognized by modern scholars in the Bible Review of June 1997. Professor J. Harold Ellens observed that, quote, from Nicaea to Chalcedon, the speculative and Neoplatonist perspective of Alexandrian Christology gained increasing ground and became Orthodox Christian dogma in 451 CE. Tertullian, known as founder of Latin Christianity, like Justin, knows of a second divine being who is generated in time by the Father. Tertullian wrote, There was a time when the Son did not exist. God was not always a Father. That's in Tertullian's work Against Hermogenes, chapter 3. This Christology, which has ominous affinities with Gnostic dualism, could not have thrived unless it were first supposed that John meant that the Son, as distinct from God's word or wisdom, had existed from the beginning. The public continues to rely heavily on John 1, verse 1, for the doctrine of the co-equal deity of Christ. But what if they'd been schooled on any one of the eight English translations which preceded the publication of the King James Version in 1611. For example, with the one exception noted, the following translations rendered John 1.3, by it all things were made, without it nothing was made, the Tyndale Bible in 1535, Coverdale in 1550. This version has the same rather than it. The Matthew translation 1535, Taverner, 1539, the Great Cranmer's Bible of 1539, the Whittingham Bible of 1557, Geneva Bible of 1560, and the Bishop's Bible of 1568. Another line of investigation of John's meaning is the extra-biblical literature of Judaism. In the Qumran Manual of Discipline, we learn that, quote, by God's knowledge, Everything comes to pass, and everything that is established by his purpose, and without it or him, it is not done. Surely this is an echo of John's by it, the word with lowercase w, all things came to be, and without it nothing came to be. John 1 verse 3. At the Dead Sea Scrolls we find the 1 QS 3.15, saying this, from the God of knowledge is all that is and that is to be. And in the Apocrypha, O God, who has made all things by thy word, in Wisdom 9, verse 1, and again in Sirach 42, verse 15, I will now remember the works of the Lord and declare the things that I have seen. In the words of the Lord are his works. In the Odes of Solomon, we learn that, quote, the worlds were made by God's word, lowercase w, and by the thought of his heart. J. 
chapter 16, verse 19. We are surely in the atmosphere of the God who spoke, and it was done in Genesis 1. And in John 1, verse 1, we learn more of the self-expressive and creative activity of the word which, not who, but which, became Jesus. Jesus is therefore what the word became. I believe that many scholars would come to this sort of interpretation if they were not under the constraints of orthodoxy. How interesting, for example, that the great F. F. Bruce wrote of John 1, verse 1, and the problem of the pre-existence of Christ, F. F. Bruce wrote, on the pre-existence question, one can at least accept the pre-existence of the eternal word or wisdom of God, which, or should it be who, became incarnate in Jesus. Whether any New Testament writer believed his separate conscious existence as a second divine person is not so clear. I'm not so sure that Paul so believed. Those are the words of Ephraim Bruce in correspondence with me in 1981. Is this, after all, anything different from the plain definition offered us by the standard lexicon of Arndt and Gingrich? They say of the word in John 1 verse 1, our literature shows traces of a way of thinking that was widespread in contemporary syncretism as well as in Jewish wisdom literature and philo, the most prominent feature of which is the concept of the logos, the independent, personified word of God. This divine word took on human form in a historical person. That's from William F. Arndt and F. Wilber Gingrich in their Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature, written in 1957. It is most reassuring to have this definition offered us by such a prestigious authority. You notice that Arndt and Gingrich said nothing about the word meaning the Son, before the birth of Jesus. The word, with lowercase w, in John 1, 1, they think, is a personification, not a person. And yet, without belief in that second pre-existing Son, it is not possible in many church circles to qualify as a genuine believer. What an amazing paradox. The situation is different at the level of academic biblical studies. How much then is at stake in the word word? Is it a person pre-existing or a purpose or even the gospel? Trinitarians sometimes argue as follows. One, the word was God. Jesus was the word, therefore Jesus was God. These premises must be examined. The word is not identical with God. It's distinguished from God in some sense by being with him. If identity were meant, then we would read atheos, not theos. The word was not a second God. If then the word is neither identical with God, how can it be if it's also with God, nor an independent God, the phrase the word was with God can only mean as A.E. Harvey points out, that the word was an expression or reflection of God. Compare with that wisdom, chapter 7, 
verses 25 and 26, that it was in some sense divine, that's to say, belonging to God. That's a quotation from A. E. Harvey in his book, Jesus and the Constraints of History, written in 1982. The second premise, Jesus was the Word, does not have to mean that the Word is identical with Jesus from eternity. Jesus is what the Word became. He's an expression of the Word from his birth as Son of God. John 1 verse 14. To say that Jesus was an expression of God's revealing activity in no way proves that the Son of God was an uncreated member of the Trinity. Thinking like Jews. The whole issue of pre-existence is profoundly affected by the way we read biblical statements. What does it mean for something to, quote, be before it exists on earth? Are we dealing with foreordination or literal pre-existence? The fact is that, quote, when the Jew wished to designate something as predestined, he spoke of it as already existing in heaven. So said E.G. Selwyn, in his first epistle of St. Peter. Thus, in Colossians 1, verse 5, Paul speaks of the hope of the Christian inheritance of the coming kingdom being, quote, laid up for you in heaven. The inheritance promised for our future has been in existence in God's plan from eternity. What is future for us is, in this special sense, past for God. Similarly, the mystery of the future kingdom has been hidden with God in his eternal purposes. Romans 16, verse 25. So also the wisdom now given to us was ordained before the world for our glory. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 7 to 9. According to this manner of describing God's predetermined purposes, the Bible can even say that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, verse 8, as read by the RV, Revised Version. What is decreed may thus be said to have taken place in God's intention, though actually the event has not yet occurred. This important biblical principle appears also in Paul's thought that God calls things that are not as though they were. Romans 4, verse 17. In this context, the reference is to Isaac, who was, quote, real in the thought and purpose of God before he was begotten. That's from the Expositor's Bible Commentary by Harrison, written in 1976. The Almighty addresses non-existent things as if existing, because soon to exist according to his purpose. So says Dr. Moore in his commentary on Romans in the Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges series, written in 1918. In the same way, Paul can say that God has glorified the believers, meaning that their future glory is assured because God has decreed it. Romans 8, verse 30. Scripture announces 700 years before the birth of Jesus that, quote, a son has been given to us, Isaiah 9, verse 6. 
Modern versions properly translate these past tense verbs into the future. A son will be given to us, because this is what they imply. I note the following past tenses of prophecy in the prophets are typical of the Hebrew way of thinking. Quote, my people have gone into captivity. Isaiah 5, verse 13. Unto us a son has been given. Isaiah 9, verse 6. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Isaiah 9, verse 2. They have devoured Israel. Isaiah 9, verse 12. He has come to Eath. Isaiah 10, 28. I have laid in Zion. Isaiah 28, verse 16. He has utterly destroyed them. Isaiah 34, verse 2. It is fair to ask whether this past tense of prophecy or past tense of intention may not appear also in John's Gospel. We have no difficulty recognizing that God's promise to give Abraham the land referred to the future, yet it was expressed by a past tense. To your seed I have given this land. Genesis 15, verse 18. The Sonsino commentary observes appropriately, quote, God's promise is worded as if it were already fulfilled. The past tense must not be taken literally here, for the land had not, and still has not, despite a former inheritance of the land under Joshua, in Joshua 21, 43 to 45, the land has still not become Abraham's, finally. Stephen says plainly, God did not give him a square foot of this land to call his own, yet he promised to give it to him. Acts 7 verse 5. The apparent contradiction between Genesis 15 verse 18, I have given, and Acts 7 verse 5, God did not give, is easily resolved by recognizing the prophetic past tense which points to the certainty of future fulfillment because of a past decree in God's great purpose. Similarly, God gave the land to Abraham and Isaac, Genesis 35, verse 12, though they did not receive it. I note that the writer to the Hebrews expects that Abraham will yet inherit the land in which he once dwelt as a stranger, Hebrews 11, verse 9. We shall suggest the application of this principle to the pre-existence language in John when we come to consider John 17, verse 5 below. But first an examination of John's other pre-existence so-called text is in order. What does John mean by Jesus coming and being sent? Relying on the preconception that Jesus in John's Gospel, came from a pre-human existence in heaven, readers of the fourth Gospel claim that Jesus coming from the Father, or coming forth from the Father, or being sent from God, are clear proof of the doctrine of the Incarnation, that the Son pre-existed his birth and became man. However, the same language is used of persons for whom no pre-existence is claimed. John the Baptist was also, quote, sent from God, John 1, verse 6. Nicodemus thought that Jesus was a teacher come from God, not meaning that Jesus had pre-existed, 
but only that God had commissioned him. John 3, verse 2. Jesus was, quote, from God, ek theu. But disciples are also to be from God, ek theu. John 8, verse 47. In John's language, false prophets have, quote, come forth, exegese, into the world. 1 John 4, verse 1, that's to say, to preach. Jesus similarly claimed that he had come forth to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Mark 1, verse 38. Mark had no reference to pre-existence anywhere in his gospel, and Luke's version of the same saying is that Jesus was, quote, sent by God. Luke 4, verse 43. Coming and being sent are synonymous ways of expressing the notion that Jesus was commissioned by God as his agent in the typically Jewish sense of the shaliach, or ambassador, who is empowered with full authority from the one who quote, sends him, sends him out, that is, with a message. Compare with that the statement of P. Borgen in an essay, God's Agent in the Fourth Gospel, written in 1968. James Dunn points out that Moses and the prophets and others are sent by God. I quote, it is evident that send forth ex apostelin when used of God, does not tell us anything about the origin or point of departure of the one sent. It underlines the heavenly origin of his commissioning, but not of the one commissioned. That's from Professor James Dunn's book, Christology in the Making. The point is further established by the remarks of Ringsdorf, his comment reveals a persistent tendency of expositors to weave the idea of pre-existence into otherwise so-called innocent biblical terms. I quote, Linguistically, there's no support for the thesis of Zahn in his comment on Galatians 4, verse 4 to 6. As also many older and more recent commentators, there's no evidence that in Galatians 4, verse 4, the ex in ex apostelline indicates that prior to his sending, the one sent was in the presence of the one who sent him. That's a quotation from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament written in 1964 to 1976. The same caution should be applied to the use of ex apostelline send out in John. It does not by itself imply that the Son pre-existed with the Father before being sent. To be, quote, sent from God means to be commissioned to perform a special task for God. To come forth into the world means to appear before the public with a mission. It has nothing to do with existing before one's birth. John is commonly read, however, with the assumption that Jesus was literally sent from a pre-mundane existence in another sphere. Similarly, quote, coming down from heaven need not imply a previous existence in heaven in a literal sense. 
in New Testament language, quote, every good gift comes down from heaven. As we read in James 1, verse 17, and compare with that James 3, verse 15, not that every gift descends through the sky. The holy city will also come down from heaven, Revelation 21, verse 2. But this does not prove that it literally floats down out of the sky. This, quote, descent language reflects the well-known characteristic of Hebrew thinking that many of the prominent persons or objects in God's plan have, quote, existed in heaven before they are seen on earth. Compare Emi Schurer's statement that in Jewish thinking, quote, everything truly valuable pre-existed in heaven. That's from his book, The History of the Jewish People in the Age of Jesus Christ, written in 1979. When Jesus drew the parallel between his so-called coming down from heaven, John 6, 33, verse 38, verse 50, verse 51, and verse 58, when he drew that comparison between the descent of the manna from heaven and his own coming down, the manna was described in Exodus 16, verse 4 and 15, Numbers 11, verse 9 in the Septuagint, Jesus gave no indication that he literally descended. The manna itself did not literally pass through the skies from God's throne to the wilderness. It appeared miraculously on earth. Jesus, quote, coming down from heaven means, therefore, that he is God's miraculous gift to mankind, planned in God's eternal counsels. Jesus also, quote, came into the world. But in Johannine language, every human being equally comes into the world, John 1, verse 9. And the expression simply means to be born. I am a king, Jesus said. To this end was I born, and for this cause I came into the world, John 18, verse 37. The synoptic version of this saying conveys the same sense, though the language is different. Quote, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, that is the reason for which I was sent. Luke 4, verse 43, and compare with that Mark 1, verse 38. Compare also John A.T. Robertson's book, The Human Face of God, written in 1973, for an examination of John's use of the same language for Jesus and believers. Jesus before John. John the Baptist says of Jesus that he was before me. John 1, verse 15. Many readers naturally find in these words a confirmation of their belief that the Son was alive in heaven before his birth. Morris, however, shows that the ambiguous phrase before me may refer to superiority of rank rather than priority in time. The verse may be translated Quote, a follower of mine has taken precedence of me, for he always was before me, that's to say my superior, 
Though the commentary supports the idea that Jesus was, in fact, before John in time, it admits that, quote, some take first to mean not first in time or before, but first in importance, which will give such a meaning as he was my chief. At the quotation from the words of Leon Morris in his The Gospel According to John. This is how Murray and Abbott understand this verse. Uh, in their book, Jesus According to St. John and Abbott, the Johannine Grammar, and this would be translated then that Jesus was always superior to John. John 1, verses 15 and 30, cannot therefore be claimed as proof that Jesus existed before his birth. John 3, 13 and John 6, verse 62. There's been much discussion about Jesus' enigmatic statement, quote, that no one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. If the words are taken as Jesus' own words, rather than a later comment by John, Jesus appears to be saying that he alone has ascended to heaven. Commentators are struck by the surprising use of the perfect tense. I quote, The perfect tense, has ascended, is unexpected, so says Leon Morris in his Gospel according to John. The use of the perfect tense is a difficulty, for it seems to imply that the Son of Man has already ascended into heaven. The difficulty of the verse lies in the tense of the verb has ascended. It seems to imply that the Son of Man had already, at the moment of speaking, ascended into heaven. In what sense can Jesus have claimed already to have ascended to heaven? The statement has been taken by some to mean that sometime during his historical ministry, Jesus had been literally transported into the presence of his Father. But the Gospels nowhere record such an event. Others have argued for a predictive sense of the past tense, that is, that the Son of Man was destined to ascend, a prophecy of his ascension after the resurrection. But there's an easier explanation of Jesus' ascent into heaven, based on biblical precedent and Jewish ways of speaking. I quote, No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man who is in heaven. This is a figurative description of Jesus' unique perception of God's saving plan. Jesus possesses a unique understanding of the secrets of the universe, which he now reveals to all who will listen. The phrase, who is in heaven, which appears in some Greek, as well as Latin and Syriac manuscripts, indicates that Jesus, while living on earth, was at the same time also, quote, in heaven, in constant communion with his Father, on whom he depended for everything. As the bridge between heaven and earth, Jesus claimed to have unique access to divine information. A similar status applies later to all believers, whom Paul described as, quote, seated 
in heavenly places. Ephesians 2 verse 6. Jesus' so-called ascent to heaven during his ministry points then to his intimate fellowship with his Father. As Son, he resides in the bosom of the Father, according to John 1.18. The context of John 3.13 shows Jesus in conversation with Nicodemus about the secrets of immortality. Jesus is, quote, talking about what we know, as he said in John 3.11. In contrast to Nicodemus' unfamiliarity with the keys to entering the kingdom and the necessity of being born again, Jesus says, I quote, Truly I tell you, we are testifying to what we have seen, but you people do not accept our testimony. John 3 verse 11. Jesus doubts Nicodemus' capacity to receive, quote, heavenly things. It is these heavenly secrets which Jesus is able to reveal because he, quote, has ascended to heaven and is in heaven. In Proverbs 30, verses 3 and 4, the words of Agur contain a similar reference to ascension to heaven. The object of such an ascent is to gain understanding and divine revelation. I quote, Surely I am more stupid than any man. I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? End of quotation. Similarly, in Baruch 3, Verse 29, the writer asks, Who has gone up to heaven and obtained her, that's to say wisdom, and brought her down from the clouds? Compare with that also Deuteronomy 30, verse 12, and see the reference in Raymond Brown's book, The Gospel According to John. In the case of Jesus, the supreme and final revealer of God's purposes, a bridge from heaven to earth has been built. The Son has exegeted the Father, as we read in John 1, verse 18. No one but the Son of Man has received such a measure of divine wisdom. At the same time, the Son of Man, which means the human being, has descended from heaven which is a Jewish expression meaning not that Jesus was alive before his birth, but that he is God's gift to the world. Compare with that James 1, verse 17, and James 3, verse 15. Adam Clark commented on our passage as follows. This seems to be a figurative expression for, quote, no one has known the mysteries of the kingdom, as in Deuteronomy 30, verse 12, and Romans 10, verse 6. And this expression is found in the generally received maxim that to be perfectly acquainted with the concerns of a place, it is necessary for a person to be on the spot. That statement was cited also by John Wilson in his book Concessions of Trinitarians, written in 1845. A German expositor, Christian Schürchen, 
in his Hore Hebraike, observed of John 3.13. I quote, It was an expression common among the Jews who often say of Moses that he ascended to heaven and there received a revelation on the institution of divine worship. He quotes the rabbis as saying, It is not in heaven that you should say, Oh, that we had one like Moses, the prophet of the Lord, to ascend into heaven and bring it, that's to say the Torah or the law, bring it down to us. It's a quotation from the Jerusalem Targum on Deuteronomy 30, verse 12. In John 6, verse 62, Jesus made a challenging statement about his destiny as the predicted Son of Man. After referring to his own, quote, difficult statements about being, quote, the bread which came down from heaven, John 6, verses 58 to 60, Jesus asked whether his teaching might also cause his audience to stumble. I quote, What if you should see the Son of Man ascending where he was before. Jesus spoke of himself in this passage as the Son of Man. As is well known, the title originates in Daniel 7, verse 13, where 550 years before the birth of Jesus, Daniel saw a vision of the Son of Man in heaven, receiving authority to rule with the saints in the future messianic kingdom. I quote again, Jesus used the title Son of Man of himself with the implication that in him was the fulfillment of the vision of Daniel. It is the title Son of Man which he specially employed when he was foretelling to his disciples the suffering and passion as the inevitable and predestined issue of his public ministry. That's a quotation from J.H. Bernard in his commentary on John in the International Critical Commentary series, written in 1948. The following texts from the Synoptic Gospels illustrate the point. In each case, Jesus speaks of himself as the Son of Man, a title meaning a member of the human race who is destined to suffer, die, and rise again. I quote, The Son of Man is to go just as it is written about him. Jesus said in Matthew 26, verse 24, Mark speaks of the passion or suffering of the Son of Man as the subject of Old Testament prophecy. I quote, How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Mark 9, verse 12. In John's Gospel also, the title, Son of Man, is associated with prediction, with what is destined to happen to Jesus in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy or typology. And as Moses lift up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. John 3, verse 14. The subject of the enigmatic statement in John 6, verse 62, 
is the Son of Man, the title which designates Jesus as the human being. If we ask where the Son of Man was before, the biblical answer is found in Daniel 7, verse 13. The man, Messiah, was seen in heaven in a vision of the future which became reality at the ascension of Jesus in Acts 2, verse 33, when Jesus had been exalted to the right hand of God. David had not ascended to heaven, Acts 2, verse 34, Contrary to much cherished tradition, the patriarchs have not, quote, gone to heaven. They are sleeping in their graves, awaiting the resurrection of all the faithful. Daniel 12, verse 2, John 5, verses 28 and 29. Only the Messiah was destined for that position. In John 6, verse 62, he anticipates his future ascension in order to fulfill what was predetermined for him according to the divine plan revealed in Daniel's vision. These verses give no support to the doctrine that a second member of the Godhead, the so-called eternal Son of God, was in heaven before his birth. It is the Son of Man, a human person, who pre-exists in heaven. There is no so-called eternal son in heaven before the birth of Jesus. Son of man does not refer to an uncreated second divine being as required by Trinitarian theology. The texts relate to the activity of the son of man. Trinitarians do not claim that the son of man, the human Jesus, existed prior to his conception. Underlying the apparent complexity of John 6, verse 62, is a very simple concept to which readers of John must become accustomed. Jesus saw himself as fulfilling the foreordained program laid out in advance by the Scriptures. What has been promised for him may be said to have actually happened in vision or other prediction before it happens in reality. The Son of Man was in heaven, seen, so to speak, in a heavenly preview before he actually arrived there. John 6, verse 62. A similar phenomenon reported by the synoptics is the appearance in vision, not actually, of Elijah and Moses. Matthew 17 verses 1 to 9. In John 3.13, the Son of Man has already gained access to heavenly wisdom. But later in John 20, verse 17, Jesus states that he is, quote, not yet ascended to the Father. The first statement in John 3.13 is to be taken figuratively, while the latter refers to Jesus' actual departure to the Father. We must reckon with this special mode of thought in John's Gospel, remembering that John was a profound thinker and theologian who delighted to report Jesus very Jewish and sometimes enigmatic interchanges with his audience. 
It should caution us against reading John in a way which sets his Christology in opposition to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the book of Acts. It is significant that the traditional Christology which supports a Trinitarian creed is derived almost exclusively from John without much concern for the synoptic portrait of Jesus, nor that of Peter in his sermons in the book of Acts and in his letters. It is upon Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah that the church is to be founded. Matthew 16, verses 16 and 18. Peter gives us no reason to believe that he thought that Jesus literally pre-existed his birth. And John wrote with the sole purpose of convincing us that, quote, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Certainly not God himself. You'll find that quotation in John 20, verse 31. If one approaches the text with the firm belief that Jesus existed before his birth, no doubt John 17, verse 5, will appear to lend strength to that conviction. I quote, And now, Father, glorify me with your own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In the light of John's conceptual framework, it is questionable whether this verse can be adduced as proof that Jesus was alive from eternity past. In biblical ways of speaking and thinking, one may, quote, have something which is promised in God's plan before one actually has it. Abraham had been given the land by divine contract or covenant, even though he did not yet own any of it. The promise reads, quote, To your seed I have given this land. Genesis 15, verse 18. At that point his seed did not yet exist, yet the land had been given to them. God's promise is worded as though it were already fulfilled. So in John 17, verse 5, the glory which Jesus, quote, had with the Father was the glory laid up for him in God's purpose for his Son. A striking illustration of this curious use of the past tense is found in verse 22. Here, the same glory promised to the Son had been given to disciples who were not yet even living. They were the disciples who would later be converted, as we see in verse 20. Speaking of them, Jesus said, The glory which you gave me, I have given to them. The meaning is obviously that Jesus had promised to give it to them. They already possessed it, though not actually. Like God, Jesus spoke of, quote, things which are not as though they existed. Romans 4, verse 17. When praying for the glory which he knew God had promised him, Jesus similarly speaks of it as glory which he, quote, had with the Father, meaning that he had it, quote, laid up with the Father as a deposit, potentially his, 
in God's plan. Elsewhere, he encouraged the disciples with the promise that their reward is great in heaven. Matthew 5, verse 12. The reward was already there, waiting to be given to them in the future at the return of Christ. Matthew 16, verse 27. So also the glory to be given to Jesus had been decreed as his possession from the beginning. Now he prayed to receive it. Commenting on this special use of language, H. H. Wendt, professor of theology at Heidelberg, wrote, It rests on a misconception of the New Testament mode of speech and conception if we immediately infer that the declaration of Jesus in John 17:5 that he had a glory with the Father before the world was created is simply and necessarily identical in meaning with the thought that he himself pre-existed. According to the mode of speech and conception prevalent in the New Testament, a heavenly good, and so also a heavenly glory, can be conceived of and spoken of as existing with God and belonging to a person, not because this person already exists and is invested with glory, but because the glory of God is in some way deposited and preserved for this person in heaven. We remember how, according to the report of Matthew, Jesus also speaks of the treasure, Matthew 6, verse 20, or the reward, Matthew 5, verse 12, and verse 46, and Matthew 6, verse 1, which his disciples have in heaven with God, and further how, in the description of the final judgment of the nations, the kingdom which those blessed of the Father shall inherit is described as one prepared for them from the creation of the world. Matthew 25, verse 34. And how also, as in Colossians 1, verse 5, and 1 Peter 1, verse 4, the hope of salvation of the Christians is represented as a blessing laid up in heaven for them. Jesus asks for himself, not something arbitrary, but what was to be given to him according to God's decree and what had always ideally belonged to him. The presupposition for this declaration, however, is certainly the thought which finds decided expression at the close of the prayer in verse 24, that Jesus himself, as the Messiah, did not indeed really exist from the beginning with God, but he was the object of the love of God, of his loving thoughts, plans, and purposes. That's a quotation from The Teaching of Jesus by Professor Wendt, written in 1892. It is crucial to seek biblical meanings for biblical expressions. If we read John within the strictly monotheistic framework which he establishes, as in John 17, verse 3, and John 5, verse 44, we should be cautious about attributing to the Messiah a pre-birth existence as an uncreated second member of the Godhead. 
the pitfall of compromising biblical monotheism can be avoided if we insist with John and Jesus that the Father, quote, alone is God, John 5, verse 44, and that the Father is, quote, the only true God, John 17, verse 3. It would be very unwise to read into the text our own post-biblical ideas derived from the so-called creeds, when a better solution to the puzzle of John's Christology lies ready at hand within the limits of his own self-imposed Jewish-Christian monotheism. The view for which we are contending was presented in a number of books written at the turn of the century by the Professor of New Testament Literature and Language at Chicago Theological Seminary, G. H. Gilbert. He first of all notes that, and I quote, it does not follow from Jesus' acceptance of, quote, worship, that the blind man regarded Jesus as of the same nature with God. The term which is translated worship is used of the homage which subjects pay to their sovereign and simply implies that the one who receives it is of a dignity superior to the one who renders it. Compare with that Revelation 22, verse 8. Of Thomas's address to Jesus as, quote, God, Professor Gilbert says, Jesus accepted the homage of Thomas as homage rendered to his messiahship. There's no suggestion that he regarded the homage as implying that he was of the same substance with the Father. That's from G. H. Gilbert's book, The Revelation of Jesus, A Study of the Primary Sources of Christianity. Written in 1899, Gilbert was also author of The Student's Life of Jesus and The Student's Life of Paul. The point is an important one against the popular notion that because Jesus was worshipped, he must be God. Worship in the Bible, however, may be offered to kings as representing God and even to glorified saints. For that information, please see 1 Chronicles 29, verse 20, and Revelation 3, verse 9. It is fallacious, therefore, to argue that because Jesus is so-called worshipped, he must be God. Jesus can be, quote, worshipped as Messiah. Only the Father is worshipped as God. The same Greek word does service for both senses of worship. Gilbert addressed the issue of pre-existence in John, observing that the Synoptic Gospels do not teach or touch on this subject. Speaking of the glory for which Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 5, Gilbert sees it as a reward for the work which Jesus had now accomplished. I quote, Jesus possessed this glory before the foundation of the world in the sense that it was divinely purposed for him. He knew that his messianic work had been planned by God from eternity 
and that the glorious outcome of it had been fixed and was kept in store for him. We conclude then that these three passages in John, John 6.62, John 8.58, and John 17.5, in which Jesus alludes to his pre-existence, do not involve the claim that this pre-existence was personal and real. They are to be classed with the other phenomena of the messianic consciousness of Jesus, none of which, either in the synoptists or in the fourth gospel, have to do with metaphysical relationships with the Father. Does a close exegesis of this chapter confirm that this is the right way to understand John's pre-existence language? The use of the past tense in John 17 needs to be examined carefully. There are clear indications in this chapter that past tenses may indeed describe not what has actually happened, but what is destined to happen because God has already decreed it. We should note first the caution offered by Raymond Brown, quote, in the Johannine references to Jesus, there is a strange timelessness or indifference to time sequence that must be reckoned with. Bernard observes that, quote, the predestined end is seen from the beginning. In his analysis of John 17, Leon Morris notes that, quote, common to all these sections of John 17 is the desire that the Father's purpose be set forward. In John 17, verse 2, Quote, we have the thought of divine predestination. Brown notices that, quote, the power to grant life would not become fully effective until Jesus' exaltation. So Jesus states that this power, quote, has been given. We can compare John 5, verse 27. God gave him authority to execute judgment. The authority has been granted, though its implementation must await the resurrection, as the next verse says. In John 17, verse 4, Jesus speaks, quote, as if the action were completed. In John 3, verse 35, also, the Father has given all things into Jesus' hand. Hebrews 2, verse 8 agrees, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. Nevertheless, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Hebrews 2 verse 8. Clearly then, divinely planned future events may be described in the past tense. The common principle underlying many of Jesus' statements in his final prayer is that God has decreed to give him power and authority, much of which has not yet been implemented. This pattern of past tenses with future meanings continues. Of John 17, verse 4, Maya held that Jesus, quote, already includes in this account the fact of his death as already accomplished. That's from Meyer's commentary on the New Testament, Gospel of John, 
written in 1884. But Jesus, when he said those things, had not yet died. Henry Alford notices that, quote, Our Lord stands by anticipation at the end of his accomplished course and looks back on it as past. That's from Alford's Greek New Testament commentary. Even in John 17, verse 9, since, quote, the historical disciples are a model for all Christians, the Christians of future time are envisaged. But Jesus spoke as though his activity on behalf of the church had already been completed. When Jesus says, quote, I have been glorified in them, the perfect tense is, and I quote, more likely proleptic, that's to say, anticipating the future, pointing forward to the glory which was yet to come, but which was certain. You find that in Leon Morris's commentary on the Gospel according to John. What is already begun and is certainly to be further accomplished in the near future, Jesus views, speaking in the perfect, with prophetic anticipation, as completed and actually existing. That's another quotation from Meyer's commentary on the New Testament Gospel of John. Jesus' prayer continues, quote, I am no longer in the world, John 17, 11. He speaks as if he had already departed. Quote, his departure is so near, he can use the present tense of it. Even in verse 12, strictly speaking, Judas had not yet finally perished, yet it is implied that he has perished in fulfillment of Scripture as a, quote, divine destiny. The past tenses with future meanings continue. I have sent them, Jesus says in John 17, verse 18. Morris notes that, quote, when we come to the apostles, we should have expected a present or future in place of, I have sent. It is perhaps more probable that the word is used proleptically. It adds a touch of certainty to the future sending out of the disciples. Maya makes the same point. I quote, the mission was indeed not yet objectively a fact. John 20 verse 21, Matthew 28 verse 19, but it was already conceived in its idea, in the appointment and instruction for the apostolic office. Finally, Jesus prays for the disciples who are not yet converted, but who will become Christians as a result of the apostolic preaching. Jesus says that the glory which God has given him Quote, has been given to the disciples of all ages. John 17, verse 22. The glory in question, and I quote, which the Father has given to him, not yet indeed objectively, but as a secure possession of the immediate future. He has obtained it from God, assigned it as a property, and the actual taking possession 
is now for him close at hand. In like manner, Jesus has given this glory to his believing ones who will enter on the real possession at the parousia, where they will be glorified together. Romans 8, verse 17. After they, up to that time, had been saved in hope. Romans 8, verse 24. They are in Christ already, his joint heirs, and the spirit which they are to receive will be the down payment. Ephesians 1, verse 14. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22. And 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5. But the actual entrance on the inheritance is accomplished at the future parousia. Here again, the past tense vividly describes things which are certainties for the future in God's plan. Jesus speaks again of the glory which, quote, you have given me, John 17, verse 24. Morris senses that, quote, Jesus may be referring to the majesty and splendor that will be his in the life to come. This glory had already been bestowed on the disciples, but as yet as a possession of hope only. Throughout John 17, Jesus constantly speaks of things awaiting fulfillment in the future as having already happened. He uses the past tense of prophecy which is not uncommon in Scripture. In John 17, verse 5, Jesus prays for the glory which he, quote, had with the Father before the foundation of the world. In view of the context in this chapter, it is clear that the glory which he, quote, had is the glory prepared for him in God's plan. It is the same glory which all the disciples, quote, had, that's to say, had been given. John 17, verse 22. Though they did not yet have it, it is the glory destined for Jesus in God's predetermined purpose. He, so to speak, had it laid up for him from eternity, just as Christians now, quote, have their yet future inheritance of the kingdom of God, it will be manifested on earth at the second coming. 1 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5. Jesus, in John 17, prayed to receive what God had appointed for him. John 17, verse 5, read in the light of its context, provides no basis for the literal pre-existence of Jesus. I note that Raymond Brown, in his The Gospel According to John, refers to a textual variant at John 17, verse 5. I quote, Among the Latin fathers and some Ethiopian manuscripts, there is support for the reading, That glory which was with you, reading in, as was, instead of I had, Taken out of that context, and in view of subsequent post-biblical teaching about the Trinity, it will appear to bolster the idea that the Son existed literally rather than notionally from eternity. John 17.5 was understood 
in the way we propose by Polish Anabaptists of the 17th century who wrote in their Rakovian Catechism that a person may have had something and consequently may have had glory with the Father before the world was without its being concluded that he actually existed is evident from 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 where the Apostle says of believers that grace was given to them before the world began. Besides, it is here in John 17 stated that Christ prayed for this glory. Christ beseeches God to give him in actual possession with himself the glory which he had with him in purpose and decrees before the world was. For it is often said that a person has something with anyone when it is promised or is destined for him. On this account, believers are frequently said by the evangelist to have eternal life. Hence it happens that Christ does not say absolutely that he had had that glory, but that he had had it with the Father, as if he had said that he now prayed to have actually conferred upon him that glory which had been laid up for him with the Father of old and before the creation of the world. That's a quotation from the Rakovian Catechism, translated from the Latin by T. Rees in 1818. The writer of that original text in 1609 observes in a note, quote, that this is the true sense of the passage is directly shown by Augustine and Beda. The writer of the original Rakovian text in 1609 observes in a note, quote, that this is the true sense of the passage and it's directly shown by Augustine and Beda. It also ought to be observed here that it has been the unanimous opinion of the Jews down to the present day that the Messiah had no existence before the creation of the world except in the divine decrees. All existing copies of that catechism in England were ordered by Parliament to be burned in April of 1652. In John 8:58, Jesus claimed superiority over Abraham. His supreme position, however, depends on the Father who glorifies his Son. John 8, verse 54. He stated that Abraham rejoiced to, quote, see my day. John 8, verse 56. That is, Abraham by faith saw Messiah's coming in advance of its actual arrival. The day of Messiah pre-existed, so to speak, in Abraham's mind. I note that there are rabbinic traditions which state that Abraham saw a vision of the whole history of his descendants. That's found in the Midrash Rabbah on Genesis 15, verse 18. Also, 4th Ezra, chapter 3, verse 14, says that God granted Abraham a vision of the end times. 
the Jews misunderstood what Jesus had said, believing that he had made a claim to be actually a contemporary of Abraham. John 8, verse 57. Jesus reaffirmed his absolute preeminence in God's plan with the astonishing claim, quote, Before Abraham was, I am he. John 8, verse 58. To grasp the meaning of the phrase, I am, in this text, it is essential to compare it with John's frequent use of the same phrase, which is in several places connected with the Messiahship of Jesus. John 18, verse 5, Jesus said to them, I am he, identifying himself as the one they were looking for. John 6, verse 20, Jesus, when walking on the water, said to them, it is I, literally, I am, or I am he. John 9, verse 9, the man healed of blindness kept saying, I am he, meaning, of course, I'm the one. John 4.26 Jesus said to the woman at the well, I who speak to you am he, that's to say, the Messiah of verse 25. John 8 verse 24 Unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. John 8 verse 28 when you lift up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am He. John 13, verse 19, I'm telling you, before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am He. John 9, verses 35 to 37, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The one talking to you is He. Compare with that John 10, verses 24 and 25. If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe me. John 8, verse 58. Before Abraham came to be, I am he. At this point, John's expressly stated purpose for writing the whole of his gospel must be kept in mind. His aim was that we should, quote, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John 20, verse 31. The fact that in the Old Testament God speaks of himself as I am he, with a capital H, does not lead us, as often thought, to the conclusion that on Jesus' lips the words I am he means I am God in the Trinitarian sense. Jesus' I am he declarations in John can be satisfactorily explained as a claim to be the Messiah. As such, Jesus presents himself as the unique agent of the one God and empowered by the latter to act on his behalf. Even if one were to connect Jesus egoimi I am statements with the words of God in the Old Testament, there would still be no justification for identifying Jesus with God in the Trinitarian sense. 
Jesus, as Messiah, may bear a divine title without being God. Once the Jewish principle of agency is taken into account, it will be readily understood that Jesus perfectly represents his Father. As agent, he acts for and speaks for his principle, so that the acts of God are manifested in Jesus. None of this, however, makes Jesus literally God. He remains the human Messiah promised by the Scriptures. Trinitarian theology often displays its anti-Messianic bias and, so to speak, overreads the evidence of John, failing to reckon with his simple monotheistic statements defining the Father as, quote, the only true God, distinct from his Son, John 17, 3, and John 5, verse 44. This procedure sets John against Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Acts. It also blurs the New Testament's central point, which is to proclaim the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. The evidence before us, as cited above, shows that the famous phrase, Ego e mi, means, I'm the promised one, the one in question. The blind man identifies himself by saying, I'm the person you're looking for. I'm the one. In contexts where the Son of Man or the Christ are being discussed, Jesus claims to be, quote, the one, as to say the Son of Man, the Christ. In each case, it's proper, as translators recognize, to add the word he to the I am. There is every reason to be consistent and to supply the he in John 8.58 also. Thus, in John 4.26, I am is equivalent to I am he, the Messiah. So in John 8.58, likewise, Jesus declares, Before Abraham was, I am he, the appointed Messiah. It's important to notice that Jesus did not use the phrase revealing God's name to Moses. At the burning bush, the one God had declared his name as, quote, I am who I am, or I am the self-existent one. Exodus 3, verse 14. The phrase in the Greek version of the Old Testament reads, Ego imi o on, which is quite different from the I am he used by Jesus. If Jesus had indeed claimed to be God, it is quite extraordinary that in a subsequent encounter with hostile Jews, he claims not to be God, but rather the unique agent of God, bearing the title Son of God, as we read in John 10, verses 34 to 36. It is fair to ask how someone can, quote, be before he actually is. Is the traditional doctrine of the incarnation of a second divine being the only possible way of dealing with the Johannine pre-existent statements? The pattern of foreordination language found in John's Gospel does not require 
a literal pre-existence of the sun. Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. Messiah's day was a reality to Abraham through the eyes of faith. So also the Messiah, so to speak, existed as the supreme subject of God's plan long before the birth of Abraham. Before Abraham came to be, I am the one. This is a profound statement about God's original plan for the world centered in Jesus. When John can also describe Jesus as, quote, crucified before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, verse 8. We have no difficulty at all grasping how this is to be understood. Jesus was the one appointed and appointed to die long before Abraham. He was the supreme agent of God's plan. If Jesus was, quote, crucified before Abraham, he himself may be said to have existed in the eternal counsels of God, and in that sense he was indeed appointed as saviour of the world before the birth of Abraham. In support of this interpretation, we cite again the comments of Professor Gilbert. Of John 8:58, he says, Jesus has been emphasizing his messianic claim. He does not say that before Abraham was born, the Logos existed. He says, I am. It is Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the man whom the Father had consecrated to the messianic work, who speaks. Just before this, he had spoken of, quote, my day, which Abraham saw. John 8, verse 56, by which we must understand the historical appearance of Jesus as Messiah. Abraham had seen this, virtually seen it in God's promise of a seed. Remember Genesis 12, verse 3, and Genesis 15, verses 4 and 5. And Abraham had greeted this day from afar, Hebrews 11, verse 13. And now it is this one who consciously realizes the distant vision of Abraham, who says, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus, therefore, seems to affirm that his historic messianic personality existed before Abraham was born. If that be the case, then its existence before Abraham must be thought of as ideal. That's from Gilbert's book, The Revelation of Jesus, a study of the primary sources of Christianity. The point that the egoimi statements of Jesus have to do with his messiahship is made also by Edwin Fried in an article, Egoimi in John 8.24, in the light of its context and Jewish messianic belief, written in 1982. Compare with that also Barrett in his essays on John. I quote, Jesus egoimi is not a claim to divinity. John has other ways, both more explicit and more guarded, of making this claim. The ambiguity of John 8, 58. 
Commentators on the book of John frequently note a certain ambiguity in the sayings of Jesus, especially in connection with the failure of the hostile Jewish audience to grasp what Jesus meant. Orthodoxy is often keen to side with the opinions of the Jews against Jesus. The Jews, it is argued, thought that Jesus was claiming to be God. Therefore, he is. But Jesus' hostile audience is not a safe guide to the intentions of Christ. We've already seen that Jesus had to correct the Jewish misunderstanding that he was claiming to be God. His claim was that he was the Son of God, which is the rank of a human being, not God. In John 8, verse 58, there's an interesting grammatical ambiguity which makes a different translation possible. The standard rendering before Abraham came to be, I am, is not the only way to render the Greek. It's an elementary fact of language that the Greek aorist infinitive takes its meaning from the context. It may refer to events, future or past. Thus Matthew writes, Before the cock will have crowed, Matthew 26, verse 34, prin in the Greek there, before, plus the aorist infinitive. But earlier in the same gospel we have, before they came together, Matthew 1, verse 18, again, prin and the aorist infinitive. In John's gospel we have, sir, come down before my child dies. John 4, verse 49, again, prin plus the aorist infinitive. I have told you before it comes to pass. John 14, 29, prin plus the aorist infinitive. The question then arises, what is the proper rendering of John 8, 58? Did Jesus say, before Abraham comes to be, i.e. returns to life in the resurrection, I am? or before Abraham came to be, as to say, was born, I am he. It may be that orthodoxy misreads this verse as a proof of a pre-existent Christ. Only a few verses earlier, Jesus had spoken of resurrection as conferring endless life on those who follow him. John 8, verse 51. The Jews objected that this made Jesus superior to Abraham. Who was then dead. Jesus justifies his claim by pointing out that Abraham had in fact looked forward to the Messiah's day. The Jews misunderstood Jesus to mean that he and Abraham were contemporaries. Quote, Have you seen Abraham? John 8 verse 53, verse 56 and verse 57. Is it possible that Jesus counters with the stupendous claim that he will precede Abraham in the resurrection? Before Abraham gains immortality in the resurrection, Jesus will already be alive and immortal. This would fully justify the claim to be superior to Abraham. Coming to be, the aorist infinitive of yinome, is in fact used of resurrection 
in the Septuagint of Job 14, verse 14, I will wait until I come to be again. If the text is read as standard translations render it, Jesus will have claimed to be the Messiah appointed from eternity. Or he may be stating his superiority to Abraham in another sense. Abraham anticipated the Messiah's triumph. Jesus will indeed be enjoying endless life as the resurrected Savior long before Abraham reappears in the future resurrection. Ideal pre-existence. Pre-existence in the counsels of God rather than actual pre-existence fits well in the Jewish environment in which the Gospels were written. In Jewish writings, which provide an essential background for understanding the New Testament, I quote, pre-existence is attributed to the expected Messiah, but only in common with other venerable things and persons, such as the tabernacle, the law, the city of Jerusalem, the lawgiver Moses himself, and the people of Israel. That's a quotation from Otley's book, The Doctrine of the Incarnation, written in 1896. The picture of the Messiah which the Jews had built up from the Old Testament did not include the idea that the Messiah actually existed prior to his birth. I quote, the apocalyptic picture of Messiah is for the most part that of a human prince, majestic, richly endowed, whose advent will inaugurate a glorious future for Israel. The Messiah is to be the instrument of judgment on human oppressors, the victorious avenger of the righteous, as Jesus indeed will be at his second coming. He is human as son of man, though possessed of transcendent gifts of wisdom and power. According to one view, he will appear in days when the tribulation of the righteous has reached its height, and his reign will begin with a wholesale destruction of his foes, after which he will rule in tranquility and peace, the Holy Land being the seat of his dominion. Allusions to his being revealed and to his eternal pre-existence cannot fairly be said to imply more than predestination in the divine purpose and foreknowledge. That's a quotation from C. Otley in his book The Doctrine of the Incarnation, written in 1896. Another scholar likewise finds in the background of the New Testament pre-existence for the Messiah only in God's plan. I quote, Dalman, than whom I suppose there is no greater authority on Jewish matters, says, Judaism has never known anything of a pre-existence peculiar to the Messiah, antecedent to his birth as a human being. That's a quotation from Charles Gore, Belief in Christ.